Matthew chapter 3. We saw last time, basically, uh, uh, how God provided for Mary and Joseph on their flight to Egypt and and continually being warned in a dream. They were um, immediately and uh, uh, just uh, always obedient to the call of God in their life. There wasn't even a second... um, you know, word from them. No, but, you know, I don't understand how this is going to work. They were just automatically, uh, not automatically, but they were just willingly obedient uh, to God. And that's, we looked at that and how that should be a characteristic in our life. That when God says, here, go here, do this, we shouldn't say, well, I don't like to go there. Or, I don't want to do that. Or, or, you know, it's not very comfortable for me or whatever. It should be an immediate uh, long for that day when we get to that point where we can just say, yes, God, okay. And not put up a fight. And so we saw how God provided uh, for them on their trip and and uh, protect the Son of God. And now we pick up in chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, and basically we're going to handle this in, in, in kind of one chunk today and kind of give you some highlights because we have communion. And then next week we'll be looking at the ministry of John the Baptist and giving you a little more background on him. But today we're just going to kind of draw a few points from this whole chapter. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. Nobody said gross. That's kind of amazing. I don't know if you've ever eaten a locust. I haven't. My top ten things to try, but that's what he was eating. In verse five, then Jesus, and then, then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. You notice it doesn't just say Jerusalem; it says in Judea and in all the region. You can, you can just imagine the ministry this man had, the reaches of his ministry. It was incredible. They came to him. Verse 6, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruitfully of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he thoroughly will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus, verse 13, came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him, and John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Thus he allowed him. Verse 16, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove 
and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I want to look at three things today in, in preparation as we prepare our hearts for communion just out of this text. And we're going to look at it as a whole. Now, you have to remember, Matthew fast forwards here about 30 years in Jesus' life. We left Jesus in chapter 2, you know, and uh, all of a sudden, here his ministry begins in chapter 3. So he, he kind of goes over many years in the life of Jesus, and there's been a lot of speculation. Well, what happened during these years? There's been a lot of people that have attempted to make up stories about, oh, he was this, he, was, he did this, he went here, came here. You know, it's all speculation. We don't know. And I don't think God included in his word for a good reason. It's not important. <laughs> really wasn't. You say, well, what do you mean it's not important? I think we would have focused on all the detail. All of a sudden, his ministry begins. That's where God's our focus to be on the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant who came to die for the sins of the world. He doesn't mention about hardly anything about the years in between. And it's just not crucial for us to know that, to have a personal relationship with the Lord. We do know, obviously, that during that time, somehow, um, basically, he spent time working as a carpenter. His dad was a carpenter, so probably came up through the family. And he was living with his family there. And at some time during these, these years, history basically, by silence, tells us that somewhere along the line, Joseph passed away. No record of it. We don't know. He's never mentioned during the ministry of Jesus at all. Matthew 3 begins with this introduction of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was this preacher who lived in the wilderness. You know, some preachers are a little kind of eccentric and kind of strange sometimes. You know, you can turn on your TV and see some of them on there. They're just a little odd, you know. And uh, John the Baptist would have been thrown into that lot. He was a little odd. And, and uh, you know, people probably looked at him and thought, well, who is this guy? Um, he was a preacher who lived in the wilderness. He ate locusts and honey. I mean, that alone kind of makes it strange in my book. And he preached repentance. That's what his message was. And John did something very uh, unique. He baptized Jews. Uh, see, Jews were familiar to the rite of baptism. Uh, Christians think that they're the only ones that are familiar with it. No, Jews were familiar with the rite of baptism. But it was only for those proselytes who were converting from uh, converting to Judaism from another religion. And baptism basically symbolized the washing away of their old, sinful, pagan selves as they accepted a, a new life as a child and, and one who is true to God now. And that's kind of what their, their understanding of baptism. And it's not very far from what we believe baptism to be today. Uh, Jews didn't believe they needed to be baptized. They, they, didn't need, they, they needed that. They, they thought they were already children of God, so they didn't need this baptism. So it was only when somebody was converted from another religion, a pagan religion, then they would baptize them. See, John, however, he emphasizes kind of a new message here for the Jews of the day. He emphasized that we were all sinners. That we all have a need for repentance. No matter what your racial or your religious heritage is, it doesn't make any difference. John the Baptist preached clearly a message of repentance. And he was extremely popular during his time. Huge crowds used to come and hear this man speak. 
And, and scholars have stated sometimes that, that John baptized tens of thousands of people. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, we have a couple baptisms a year and we're going, Ugh. I mean, tens of thousands? I mean, that would, you know, help us keep in shape. I mean, you're up there dunking people person after person. I mean, but you see from the text we read here, John the Baptist was clearly no kind of like Tony Robbins, you know, the positive speaker. He wasn't like that guy. Um, when some Pharisees came to hear him speak, he didn't say, oh, they came to hear me speak, now I got to flatter them so they'll stick around. He didn't change his message for people who were in the crowd. He didn't say, oh, we're glad to hear us. We have some Pharisees visiting with us today, and we'd like to welcome you into the wilderness. By the way, here's some locusts and honey, and I hope you enjoy the service today. That wasn't his message. I mean, you look at his message, it's 7 and 8, and it flies in the face of everything that the church growth movement, for the most part, tells us to do. It says, here's what he said to them. But when he saw these many Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, they came to his baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Say, who, who, who's going to warn, who warned you from, about God's judgment? He's saying, prove the way you live. Prove that you really did repent. Prove that you really did change your mind about your sins by bringing forth fruits of repentance. I mean, those are harsh words. It'd be like somebody coming up to you and saying, wow, you know, hey, you remember you've been sharing the Lord with me over these past years and everything? And, and uh, you know, I came to the Lord last week. And you say, yeah, prove it. I mean, that would be a rude thing to say. It'd be like, what do you mean? Well, I don't see God working. I mean, God's working in your life. Then I'll believe it. I mean, that's really what he was saying to them. He was pointing out their hypocrisy. Matter of fact, he saw himself primarily as a forerunner to the Messiah. He was the message boy, the errand boy. And he spoke these, these harsh words to these folks, these religious leaders, because that's what they needed to hear. Have you ever witnessed to somebody who doesn't understand anything other than harsh words? Some people just don't get it. You can't go to some people and go, you know, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. They look at you and go, i got a wonderful plan right now. I have a million dollar house up on the hill. What do I need Jesus for? I, I have this, I have that. I mean, look at me. I, you know, I mean, they're, they're filled with pride. They're, their eyes are focused on everything that they have here on this earth. They don't, they don't need our Jesus. That's, their, that's their, their message. But when you go and you say, you know what? One day all this is going to be gone. You, and you share a harsh word with them. One day you're going to be standing before a holy God. And it's going to be thumbs up or thumbs down, bud. And you're either going to heaven or hell. And hell is a real place. And you start preaching the wrath of God to somebody like that. Sometimes it wakens them up. Because it helped put things in priority. Well, these folks needed to hear a harsh message. In the Gospel of John, when John was asked if he was the Messiah, he said in John 1.23, no. And then he quoted Isaiah's prophecy. He says, I'm the voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare straight a pathway for the Lord's coming. John's message in a nutshell was this. The Messiah is coming. You better get ready. The Messiah is coming. You better get ready. 
Look at what he says in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 3. He says, He's coming. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What he was saying there was, you know what? He is so much greater than I. And, and remember, I mean, he's preaching to tens of thousands of people. If we look at a mega church, or now they have giga churches and all this, and, and you know, you see how God is blessing some of these churches, it's amazing. You say, you know what? That individual who has that pulpit wields some, some influence, some authority. And that's what they looked at John as. Kind of the mega church of that day. And here he's saying, hey, it's not about me. It's not about who I am. I'm just kind of preparing the way for the one who's coming. And I want you to know the one who's coming is far greater than me. He's so much greater than I that I'm not even worthy to be his slave. That's what he was saying when I can't even untie his hand. He's so much greater than me. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. And John described his coming Verse 11 and 12, he says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he'll clean up his threshing area, storing the grain in the barn, but burning up the chaff with never-ending fire. Unquenchable fire. I don't know if you've ever worked on a farm or had the ability, experience to be around a farm, but these references to chaff and grain... If you don't have that experience, it's kind of you're reading this and you're going, what is this? What's this talking about? And we'll explain that in a couple minutes. But John's word in Matthew chapter 3 tells us what to expect from the Messiah. He clearly tells us. He basically points out three things. Like I said, this is an overview of this chapter, but he points out three things that Jesus promises to do for us. If we only bow our knee to him, if we only repent of our sin, if we only turn from our way and turn to God's way. Three things that, that he points out for us. Look at verse 11. First thing he'll do, he'll give you power. The very first thing that we can expect from a relationship with the Lord is power. He says in verse 11 that when he has come, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This was something brand new to them. See, up to this point, the constant God living in a person through the Holy Spirit was not a familiar concept. They couldn't grasp that. It's not an Old Testament doctrine. It's not like these Jews could say, oh yeah, yeah, that used to happen in the Old Testament. This was something that was brand new. It was understood in the, in the Old Testament days that God's Spirit would basically come upon one of God's prophets. And you can read about it in the Old Testament over and over when it talks about the prophets. And when God's Spirit would come upon him and he would anoint him, he would prophesy or he would perform a mighty work, a miracle, whatever it might be for the Lord. But it was temporary. It was always temporary. It was never a permanent indwelling of the Spirit. The Spirit would come and go. That's why you read... In some of the Psalms, David is saying, you know, don't take your spirit from me. You know, we, we see that today in our chorus. Really, doctrinally, that's kind of incorrect. Because today, if you have the spirit dwelling within you, if you're one of God's children, that's it. It's permanent. 
He assures us of that in His Word over and over and over. Who can pluck you out of His hand? And the Spirit was given to us, the church, as a deposit. You just think about this for a second. The Word of God says that Jesus came down here, He died. He said, if you believe in Me, confess your sins, come to Me, I'll not only forgive your sins, but you know what? I'm going to do one better because I'm not going to be around here. I've got to go back with the Father. That's where Jesus is now. Keep that in mind. time you hear somebody say, yeah, you know, I was saving the other morning and Jesus appeared to me. And he started talking. We had a conversation. You know, I, I want to say, you know, I don't know who appeared to you, mister, but it was not Jesus because Jesus is the right hand of the Father. That's what the Bible says. So you have to be careful nowadays. But when Jesus died and we put our faith and our trust in him for our salvation, after he was crucified and he resurrected. He didn't hang around here. He didn't say, okay, now, you know, to get the church started, here's what you got to do. You know, come on, we'll, we'll have a little group meeting and, and we'll be praying and I'll be here to help you. No, he said, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I, I got to go back and begin to prepare a place for you. You know, that's an amazing thing. We went down to, uh, kind of did a little marathon mini trip. Yesterday, we left Friday or Saturday morning at 2 in the morning, drove down to Palm Springs for a funeral of a close friend of ours, and, and uh, the funeral was at 11.30, and then went through that and went over to the, the widow's house and met with her for, and her family for a little bit, and then we left at 3 and drove back. And it was just kind of a, a quick trip, and it seemed like every message we listened to on the CDs or the songs we heard talked about eternity. Just preparing our hearts for the funeral, and then even leaving the funeral, celebration of life is what it was. He was a believer. He's with the Lord. But it was amazing to me that, you know, when we, when, we, when we die in Christ, we have that assurance. Why do we have that assurance? Because when Jesus left, what did he say? I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you a deposit, a promise that I'll come back. And that promise is my Holy Spirit. See, in the Old Testament, they missed that. The Holy Spirit would come upon somebody, allow them to do a incredible work as we read about some of the miracles and some of the prophecies, but then the Spirit would leave that person. And it wasn't until God had another work for them to do that the Holy Spirit would anoint them. Well, see, as the church today, we're indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit of God lives within us. He's a deposit. And I don't know about you, but when you go and you make a deposit on something, what does that send a message of? If you, if you, if the neighbor has a car for sale. He wants $1,000 for his car and you think it's a pretty good deal. And you go over and you say, hey, I'd love to buy your car. And he says, great. And you say, no, I don't have all the money right now. If he's a nice neighbor. What might, what he might say, you know what? Um, just give me 100 bucks. I'll hold it for you. What is that? That's a deposit. It's a deposit that you're putting on an object that you want. That you're going to come back and get. Now, yeah, sure, you, you could... You could uh, Break your word and, and not go back and get that deposit or get that car and not give them the, the rest of the money. I wouldn't be honest. That wouldn't be right. God would never do that. So God gives us the deposit of his Holy Spirit. What's happening? He's saying, you know what? You're mine. You're mine. And, and nothing but nothing is going to change this. It's a deal you can't break. It's incredible. And if that's not the fact, then, then, then God's a liar. See, the Spirit would come and go, but now it lives within us. In Ezekiel 36, 27, I think I wrote some of these down there. I will put my Spirit in you, 
so you will obey my laws and do whatever I command. Isaiah 44, 3. I will pour out my spirit and my blessings to your children. Ezekiel 37, 14. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. Joel 2.28, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. See, God promised in the Old Testament that there would come a time when he would make the power of the Holy Spirit available to everybody, not just the special prophet, not just the, the one that he, he, he anoints for a special deed, but the power of God through the Holy Spirit is available to everyone. And John the Baptist said that this promise would come through the Messiah. He's coming and he's saying, hey, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his path. And here's what's going to happen. First of all, he's going to give you incredible power. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That word baptize means to immerse. It means to take something and dunk it in something completely. That's what it means. It means to dip or to plunge. You know, it doesn't mean, you know, you've seen some of these shirts that, uh, you know, the, the tie-dye things. You know, that was kind of in for a while. And it's kind of a weird thing. It doesn't mean that. It's not a blotchy here and there. It's, it's, it's something that God completely drenches, completely dips. And when someone who's baptized is baptized, they're, they're, they're immersed in the water. That's why we have a baptism tank here. We fill it up with nice warm water. And, you know, you can go to a swimming pool or you can go to the beach, wherever. But we, we believe that biblical way of baptism is by immersion. In the same way, someone who's baptized in the Holy Spirit, they completely become drenched in the Spirit. And John is saying here that there will become a time when people, when men and women don't have to live this life in their own power. For the Spirit of God will be living life through them. That's what Paul says. It's not I. I don't this life. It's, it's the power of Christ in me. After his resurrection, when Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to his followers, he said this, But when the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8 has come upon you, you will receive what? Power. That's what he says. That's a promise from our Lord. The mark of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life is power. And it's, it's power over sin. It's power to make the right decision. It's power to get along with those you don't get along with. It's power to forgive someone. It's power to put the past behind you and look toward the future. The mark of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life is always power. And it's available to everybody. Jesus came to give us that Holy Spirit power. And you say, well, how do you get it? How do you get it? Well, the Bible teaches that when you bow your knee to Christ, when you repent of your sins, when you come to Christ and you say, Lord, you know what? It's not about me anymore. It's not about my life and how good I'm trying to be and how I'm trying to please you. Because your word says that all that stuff is but filthy rags. Dirty, disgusting rags in sight of a holy God. Before a holy God. Our good works don't mean anything to God outside of Christ. Not a thing. Well, how do we receive this spirit? Do we have to live a certain way? No, you have to bow your knee to Christ. And when you bow your knee to Christ and you ask Him, God, God forgive me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Everyone in this room has sinned at sooner or later one point or another in your life. And if you're saying, no, I haven't, I'm perfect, you're a liar. So you just sin. So, I mean, any way you cut it, there's nobody perfect. And, and God's Word over and over points that out. There's, there's none righteous. No, not one. 
The only one that lived a perfect, righteous life was the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what makes him qualified to die in our place. To meet God's standard for the judgment to fall on him. Because he was the perfect Lamb of God. And when you bow your knee to Christ, and you ask him to forgive your sin, and you repent, you turn, you change your mind and say, you know what, God, I'm not going to do it my way anymore. It's going to be your way. He sends that spirit into your life. He doesn't just say, okay, now you've got to go to church, and you've got to do Bible study, and you've got to pray, and you've got to do all these things. And if you do all those things, you know, then, then one day I'll let you in heaven. No, he says, you know what, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to give you the power to do all those things. See, every Christian has the power of the Holy Spirit, has the presence of the Spirit in their life. If, if they don't have the, the Holy Spirit, they're not a Christian. There's no such thing as being a Christian and not having the Holy Spirit. Now, granted, there's a lot of Christians who have the Holy Spirit, but are not yielding to Him. They're not being influenced by Him. Ephesians tells us that we shouldn't be filled with wine. This false illustration, you know, when you drink um, alcohol or, or any foreign substance, something that takes over your faculties, what happens? You're, you're not yourself anymore. You're being controlled by something. That's what happens. That's why the Bible warns about being drunk with wine. That's wrong. You're, you're giving yourself over to something else. That's why so many times, even in the church today, I'm amazed at when I hear people say, oh, you know, just let yourself go. And they kind of want to create this environment of praise and worship and everybody's just standing there and rocking back and forth. Oh, just open yourself up. And, you know, there's no, there's no order. There's nothing. To me, that's a scary thing. The Word of God doesn't tell us to do that. The Bible says bring every thought, what? Into captivity. You don't want to just open yourself up. And I mean, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of spirits out there floating around other than the Holy Spirit, beloved. That's a dangerous thing. I'm not against a worshipful experience. I mean, pray to God that we'd have more of those. But it's not this new agey kind of thing, you know, going on. That's not what it's about. The Holy Spirit came to give us power, and His presence in our life is signified by that power. How do you receive it? You come to Christ, first of all, you have that power in your life. Well, maybe, maybe you have that. Maybe you're a Christian here today, but you know what? You, you don't sense God's presence. You don't sense God's power in your life. You're struggling with sin on a daily basis. How do you yield yourself more fully to the Spirit? And I think that's what happens a lot of times. See, there's a whole different between being baptized in the Spirit of God that happens at salvation and being filled. The Bible says that we shouldn't be filled with wine, but we should be filled with what? The Spirit of God. We should be controlled by the Spirit of God. That's a command, and it's an ongoing command. In other words, I could stop right now and not be filled by the Spirit of God. I could not be controlled by the Spirit of God. It's a decision I could make. We're not a robot. I could walk out of here right now. Some of you are saying, yeah, please do. I'm getting tired here. No, but, you know. So, I mean, I could walk out of here right now and go to the fellowship. And all that wouldn't honor God. That, you know, I mean, God's giving me a message to lay on my heart. I wouldn't be being obedient to what God has. And so, you know, but I could do it. But there'd be consequences. But I could do it. But as I yield to God's Spirit, as I say, God, don't allow me to do what I want to do. I want to do what you want me to do. That's what being controlled by the Spirit of God is. In Luke 11.13, it 
says this, if you sinful people how, know how to give good gifts to your children. We just finished Christmas, a lot of gift giving going on. Hopefully you gave people good gifts. You know, you didn't give them the cheesecake that was in the refrigerator for the last year. You know, wrap it up and say, here, or the fruit cake, you know, that passes around every year. Whatever, you know, that they use for a door, a door wedge or something. You know, hopefully you gave people good gifts. Well, it says, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How do you receive this? You yield your life to Christ, but then also, you have to pray a prayer. You have to, you have to open yourself up to God. You have to say, God, fill me with your Spirit. There's three basic things here involved in that. First of all, it's repentance. When you, when you pray, you communicate with God, the first thing on our heart should be a heart of repentance. Because, and it's not a one-time deal. I mean, yeah, we repent of our sin. When we repent, repent from our sin, we turn from our sin when we come to Christ. But also later on, you know what? I may need to, need to repent tomorrow of a sin. I may need to turn away from a sin that I commit tomorrow or next week or whenever, today. And repentance simply means turning from sin and turning to God. That's all it is. And that prayer is just that. It's, it's God, you know what? I don't like the way my life is going. And, and even if you're a Christian, you know, we need to repent. I mean, we need to turn away from sin. We need to turn away from being selfish. We need to turn away from having the wrong attitude or whatever it might be. So we repent. We turn away from sin. We turn to God. We submit ourselves, which is yielding yourself to God. You know what, God? I've been doing things my own way. Now I'm going to yield myself to you. I'm going to put myself under your authority. Thirdly, it involves faith, which is trusting God to fill you. Trusting the Holy Spirit to take control of your life. And like I said, that's an ongoing command. It's not something you do once and that's it. Now I'm filled. Now I'm completely perfect every way. I'll never sin again. No. Because as soon as you take back control of your life from the Holy Spirit, you're bound to sin. It's kind of like yesterday driving back. We kind of did this marathon run. and We stopped at an In-N-Out somewhere. And uh, I didn't want to waste time sitting in the restaurant and actually eat and get out of the car. <clears throat> No, that wouldn't be right. So, you wives are going, oh, how horrible. But, you know, do a potty break here and there. But for the most part, we're in the car and we're driving. That's the way it works. So, you know, you get hungry, we're going through the drive-thru. So, we're in the drive-thru and, and uh, you know, we get our In-N-Out burger and fries and whatever. And got it all loaded up there and we're ready to go. And, and uh, we're back on the freeway. And, you know, oh, I see your French fries. I say, hey, can I... French fries, you know, and she's like, well, you're on the on-ramp, you know, just wait till you get on the freeway and then, you know, kind of set them on your lap or, or uh, whatever it might be. And I remember for a while that she actually held the steering wheel for me and drove while I kind of shoved this burger in my mouth quickly. But then I was quick to take back control of the car. If there's something you know about me, I don't like other people in control of a car when I'm in it. I don't know why, it's this quirky thing. You guys laugh at me, but, you know, whatever, I'm working on it. So, you know, but I was quick. I was quick to grab that wheel. I didn't grab it. I just put my hands back on it and kind of dismissed hers. Said, I'm back in control of the vehicle. Okay. That's what happens in our lives sometimes. You know, when God comes in, when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, when we confess of our sin, we turn to Christ. He says, all right, you know what? I'm in control of the ship now. I'm in control of your car. You get in the back seat. You're not just sitting in the... You're in the back seat now. The Holy Spirit's driving your vehicle down 680 in rush hour traffic. If you're like me, that's going to be very uncomfortable. 
it's going to be hard not to reach up and say, okay, Holy Spirit, I've had enough in here. I want back in the driver's seat. I want, to, I want to be responsible for where I go and what I do in my own life. I don't want to yield control of my life to you. It's not normal for us just to yield control of things over to other people. I don't care how, we, how we're made up, our personality. That's not a normal thing. We like to be in control of things. That's where fear comes from. Fear comes from not having control over something. You go home and you get a phone call. Just been diagnosed with something. Wow. There's no control over that. It's not like you go to the, you know, you go to the, the medicine cabinet and go, okay, I guess I'll take a cancer pill and everything will go away. It doesn't work that way. That's out of your control. And that's what I want to do. That turns you to God. That makes you realize, you know what? Life is a lot bigger than some of the things that I'm, I'm sorting through right now. And, and I need to, by faith, God, trust that you will be in control of my life. And you need to climb in the back seat again and let the Holy Spirit drive your car. As long as the Holy Spirit's driving your car, you're not going to get any tickets. By the way, I made it the whole way without a ticket, in case you're wondering. Notice I didn't say I drove the speed limit. I just said I made it back without tickets. I'm not going to lie from the pulpit. So anyway, um, we can talk about that later. But uh, secondly, Bob, you'll be proud of me. Um, secondly, you know, when, when, we, when we do that, it's, it's just kind of a, an important thing that we, we, we make that point to say, you know, God, we need to just trust in you. We need to be filled by your spirit. We need to expect that power to come from his spirit. And that's what, what John's message was. Be filled with the Spirit. And it comes from repentance, submission, and faith. Secondly, quickly, he says he's going to make you pure. In verse 11, he says he's going to baptize you with the Spirit, this Messiah that's coming. He's not only going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, he's going to baptize you with fire. All right, what does it mean he will baptize you with fire? What does fire represent? The Word of God, it, it primarily represents, sometimes it rep represents judgment, but it primarily purification. That's what it represents. Metal is purified by fire. And you know what? So are our lives. When we live our lives, God has in store for us some things that are not comfortable. It's not normal for us to go through some of the things we go through. And yet God says, hey, you know what? I'm in control. I know what I'm doing. I know you don't like this. I know you don't like this path right now I have you on. But you know what? It's there for a purpose. And I want you to stay on that path till my purpose is wrought out in your life. And I know it's uncomfortable. But you know what? Rely on my spirit. He's going to give you the power. And, and you'll come out the other end a lot purer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Verse 11 to 16, Paul says this, For no one can lay any other foundation than the one which we have already laid, Jesus Christ. Now anyone who builds on that foundation may use gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, straw. But there is going to come a time, and here's what he says, of testing at the judgment day to see what kind of work each builder has done. I don't know if you're like me, I don't like tests. I just don't, I've never done well in tests, don't look forward to tests. And it's always, you know, one of those things, oh, you get nervous and forget things. But one day there's going to be a test. And everyone's work will be put through the fire, it says, to see whether or not it keeps its value. If the work survives the fire, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned, that builder will suffer great loss. The builders themselves will be saved, but like someone escaping through a wall of flames. See, when John promises this baptism of fire, he's promising God's work in your life to make you pure. 
That's what he's promising. He's saying that the coming Messiah will cleanse your life of everything that isn't pleasing to God as you yield to him and his spirit on a daily basis. Verse 12, Matthew, he says, he's already he's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. And then he'll clean the threshing area, storing the grain in the barn, but the chaff will uh, never ending will be burned up in a never ending fire. See, when grain is harvested, you have to remember, it includes impurities. It doesn't come out just perfect little pieces of grain. There's impurities in there. You know, there's parts of the plant that aren't, aren't the grain and, and things like that. All this kind of stuff. And, and what happens is the grain farmers, they use this tool called a winnowing fan. It's like a giant kind of shovel. And what they do, they would scoop up the grain in a big, big scoop. And the chaff was on the, the threshing floor. And they'd, the grain and the chaff would be in this big pile. And they'd throw it up into the air. Well, what would happen? Well, the chaff is kind of the light parts of the plant, and they're not important. It's just stuff that you throw out. Well, the grain is heavy, so the grain would fall directly down. And the wind would come in and blow the chaff away. And if you do that enough, sooner or later, you're just going to have grain. And John says that the work of the Messiah, that's what he's going to do in our lives. He'll separate the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad, the meaningful from the... The, the, the significant. Some people may kind of interpret this almost as a threat. Doesn't sound very comfortable to be going through this process. But you know what? I choose to look at it as a promise. Jesus wants to clean our lives up. He wants, it's a promise, he says. He wants to get rid of everything that's useless, that's harmful. He wants us to be pure and holy as he is pure and holy. And you can't do it by yourself. You know, if you took that chaff and tried to make bread out of it, <laughs> I don't know what you'd have, but it wouldn't be bread. It'd probably be like, well, I won't say it. But anyway, you know, it's just not, not good stuff to eat. And he wants to get rid of everything in our life that isn't worthy. have to eliminate that chaff in the same way he wants your life to produce good results. And to do that, you have to get rid of the chaff. You have to get rid of those impurities. And that should be a daily prayer for each one of us. We wake up in the morning, God, you know what? If there's something in my life today, whatever it might be, I may not even recognize it, but if it's there, I pray somehow, you'll, you'll, you'll cleanse me of that. You'll show that to me. Show me that impurity. And take it away by the power of your Spirit. Let it blow away. We should welcome this baptism by fire that he's talking about. Because I know that he's using it, God is using it in our lives to make us purer, to make us more holy. He's using it to get rid of anything that might hold us back from his purpose in our life. That includes sin, that includes mixed up priorities, that includes religious kind of, uh, you know, outworkings and superficiality, all those things. Anything that doesn't conform to the will of God, God says, I don't want that in your life. I don't want... To come in and I want you to allow me to come in and, and clean it up. So that we can be free to serve Him the way God wants us to serve Him with a pure heart. The third thing, He wants to provide a path to follow. You notice that Jesus came to John to be baptized. Interesting. Jesus, the Son of God, came to John to be baptized? And you see by John's reaction, John was preaching a baptism of repentance. 
what a weird thing. The Son of God, He didn't need to repent. He was perfect in every way. He was without sin. He didn't need God's forgiveness. He was God. Why did He come to John to be baptized? Even John kind of recognized that. He says, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? Look at what his answer is in verse 15. It must be done because we must do everything that is right or to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus was baptized by John to endorse, so to speak, John's message so that those around could identify with it as well. John's message was one of repentance. It was a message we all need to hear and we need to obey. And, you know, it wasn't customary in those days for Jews to be baptized. They didn't think they had any reason to be baptized. They were already God's children. But John taught that everybody, it didn't matter whether you were a Jew, a non-Jew, whatever, you were separated from God by sin. And Jesus was saying, you know what? My act of obedience is an example for us to follow. He's saying, follow my example. And it played another role, the baptism of Jesus was also the public initiation of his ministry. It said that after Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. It doesn't say a dove descended on him. That'd be a little scary. But it said, like a dove. And a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son, and I am fully pleased with him. God's words that day were very clear to everyone. Jesus is the one whom we should follow. He's the way. Later on, one of the disciples of Jesus asked him, how do we know the way? Remember? And Jesus answered in John 14, 6. He said, you know what? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one, no man, no woman, no child, nobody comes to the Father except through me. One way. Jesus, the Messiah, is our path to God. We're to follow His example. We're to follow His teachings. We're to follow Him. He came into the world to be our Messiah. Our Savior. He wants to fill you with His power. I fill you with the Spirit. He wants to make you pure by burning away all the chaff, the impurities, the sin that hold you back. He wants to give you a path to follow. A path that leads to eternal life. There's something that only the Son of God can do. He's the only one who can give you that path to eternal life. He's the Messiah. I pray this morning you'd let him be your Messiah as well. Let's close the word of prayer as I, we prepare our hearts for our communion time together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we do pray for that power that you promised us. We pray for that purity. And Lord, we pray that we would have, as we yield to the Spirit, the ability to follow the path that you've laid out for us. Lord, I just pray that you would minister to our hearts this morning. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has yet to put their faith, their trust in you for salvation, Lord, I pray that they wouldn't think that this is just another church service. Lord, I pray that if they're here this morning, they're here because you want them to be here. And Lord, your word, your truth was shared this morning. Your word is that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. It's just that simple. It's crying out to God, recognizing our sinful state. We've all sinned. We don't live the way we should. We don't think the way we should. We don't even talk the way we should.
We're sinful people. And we need your grace. And that grace is available to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that they would cry out to you this morning. They'd turn from their sin and turn to you. For us Christians, I pray that we would just ask you to fill us once again with your Spirit. Lord, it's an ongoing process. Take control of our lives. Help us to do things that are pleasing to you. Lord, as we come to this communion table today, I pray that we would examine our hearts, that we would do everything we can to make sure that our hearts are pure before you. Even if that, even now, means coming to you in confession and repentance, submitting to your will by faith. Lord, we practice an open communion here, and by that I mean it's open to all those who have put their faith or trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only God knows your heart. But if, you, if you're sitting here this morning and you know certain that you're not a Christian and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, this, this communion passing these elements, the, the cracker and the juice, really isn't going to mean anything to you. So we would just ask that you pass it, pass it on down the, the aisle. Nobody make fun of you or nobody even notice probably because we should all be focusing our hearts and our attention on God. But it's never too late to cry out to Him, to tell Him that you want to follow Him. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.